This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. All right, hi everybody. Uh, my name is Nick Stephanopoulos. Uh, I'm a professor here at the law school. Uh, thanks to you all uh, for coming for this talk. Uh, I'll be discussing today a topic, uh, voting rights, that's uh, both near and dear to my heart and also arguably more important now than it has been for decades. And in particular, I'll be talking today about the Supreme Court's decision a couple months ago in Shelby County versus Holder and its implications for minority representation in the South. Shelby County, of course, was the blockbuster decision at the end of the court's last term in which the court held that one of the two pillars of the Voting Rights Act, uh, Section 5, was unconstitutional. So I'll briefly summarize the opinions in the case and then I'll explain how Section 5 and the Act's other pillar, Section 2, work. And then I'll spend most of my talk exploring what I think is now the most important question in the wake of Shelby County, uh, which is what's likely to happen in the South now that Section 5 no longer applies, but Section 2 still does. And I'll address the procedure of voting rights litigation and then two key substantive areas, uh, vote denial and vote dilution. And I'll close finally with some thoughts on how Congress or the court could close this gap that has now emerged between Section 2 and Section 5. Um, okay, so starting with the decision itself, the majority held in Shelby County that Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act uh, was beyond Congress's enforcement power under the Reconstruction Amendments. Uh, Section 5 was a provision that required certain jurisdictions, mostly in the Deep South, to get permission or preclearance from the Department of Justice or a federal court before amending any of their election laws. So if a jurisdiction wanted to enact a photo ID requirement for voting, or to pass a new district plan, or even to move a polling place, the jurisdiction had to get uh, preclearance from the DOJ or the court. And the legal standard for preclearance was the absence of what's known as <coughs> retrogression. So a proposed change couldn't reduce the electoral strength of minority groups like African Americans or Hispanics. Uh, it couldn't make them worse off electorally than they were before. So why did the court strike down Section 5? The answer is that in the court's view, the formula that determined which jurisdictions were subject to the preclearance requirement was irrational, uh, quote, based on decades-old data and eradicated practices, uh, as the court put it. The formula singled out jurisdictions that had used a test or device in the 1968 or 1972 elections and that had less than half of their population turn out in those long ago elections. So the court thought that this formula was too outdated, too obsolete to be constitutional. If Congress wants to apply the preclearance requirement to some places but not to others, it has to use, quote, current data reflecting current needs. So this language might suggest that the court's decision is no big deal. All Congress has to do, it seems, is to update the coverage formula using some more recent data. Uh, and indeed, the court said at one point that Congress is, quote, free to draft another coverage formula based on current conditions. But there's also language in the court opinion that suggests that preclearance is no longer a permissible remedy at all. So the court repeatedly called preclearance a measure that can be justified only by exceptional conditions, like the ones that existed in the Jim Crow South. 
And the court also said that the argument that preclearance is now inherently invalid, quote, has a good deal of force. So it's not actually clear that Congress could reinstate the preclearance system, even if the votes to do so somehow could be found. Uh, so Justice Ginsburg wrote a long and impassioned dissent in Shelby County, and I'll just mention a few of her key points here. One is that the majority never specified the standard of review that it used to strike down Section 5. And consistent with earlier Section 5 cases, Justice Ginsburg argued that the standard should be rational basis. Did Congress use or choose rational means to accomplish the 15th Amendment's objective of ending racial discrimination in voting? Justice Ginsburg also summarized the record that Congress compiled when it decided to renew Section 5 in 2006. So there were about 700 preclearance objections uh, since the last reauthorization in 1982. There were another 800 or so policies that jurisdictions decided to withdraw after the DOJ asked for more information about those policies. And there were lots of awful anecdotes of discrimination in the record. Uh, elections canceled to prevent minority candidates from winning. Attempts to prosecute minority candidates for trumped up charges. District plans that packed or cracked minority voters. And the list goes on. Uh, next, Justice Ginsburg addressed the majority's argument that the coverage formula was irrational. And she noted that under the act's other pillar, section two, which I'll talk more about in a minute, the frequency of lawsuits was higher in areas covered by section five, and so was the success rate of those lawsuits. So it wasn't crazy for Congress to conclude that the problem of racial discrimination in voting was still worse in the covered areas. And finally, Justice Ginsburg attacked the majority for really failing to engage with the congressional record. So the majority never mentioned the volume of preclearance objections between 1982 and 2006. The majority never addressed any of the Section 2 evidence that the coverage formula was actually rational. And in fact, the majority didn't cite any data whatsoever except for a few statistics about registration and turnout. And Justice Ginsburg thought this was a very cavalier way to strike down one of the real crown jewels of the civil rights era. Um, okay, so that's what the opinions in Shelby County said. Uh, I'm going to spend the rest of this talk exploring what the likely implications of the decision will be for minority representation in the South, which I think is now the crucial unresolved question after the case. But before I can do that, I want to just give a little bit more information about how the VRA's two key sections actually work. So as I mentioned, Section 5 uh, applies only to jurisdictions that are identified by the statute's coverage formula. And for the time being, that's a null set. Uh, so covered jurisdictions have to ask for preclearance from the DOJ or a federal court before they can amend any of their election laws. And preclearance is granted if a jurisdiction shows that a change, quote, neither has the purpose nor will have the effect of denying or abridging the right to vote on account of race or color. Uh, any discriminatory purpose is enough to result in a denial of preclearance. Uh, and, and also diminishing the ability of minority members to elect their preferred uh, rep candidates of choice is also enough to block preclearance. Um, on the other hand, the other key provision of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, <laughs> applies permanently and it applies nationwide. And its 
a fairly conventional cause of action that authorizes minority voters to sue if some electoral practice, quote, results in a denial or abridgment of the right to vote on account of race or color. The provision is violated if minority members, quote, have less opportunity to participate in the political process and to elect the representatives of their choice. Um, okay, so in the wake of Shelby County, of course, Section 5 no longer applies in the South, but Section 2 still does apply. So I'll talk next about how the provisions differ procedurally, and then about how they diverge substantively with respect to vote denial and vote dilution. And the goal throughout this discussion is to figure out how big the gap is between the provisions. So in other words, how big of an impact did Shelby County have by effectively nullifying Section 5? So starting with procedure, there are three main differences between Section 2 and Section 5, all of which mean that some policies that formerly would have been blocked now will go into effect. First, the burden of proof under Section 2, as under most causes of action, is on the plaintiff that brings the suit. But the burden under Section 5 is on the jurisdiction that requests preclearance. So presumably, there are at least some cases in which this differential allocation of the burden of proof makes a difference. Uh, second, the default before a, a decision on the merits is reached is that a policy goes into effect under Section 2, but the default under Section 5 is that a policy is blocked up until a decision is made about preclearance. So this means that even if a policy is eventually struck down under Section 2, it still goes into effect for a while, potentially one or more election cycles. And third, Section 2 and Section 5 are different in the magnitude and in the allocation of their cost. So Section 2 litigation is much more expensive than Section 5 preclearance, which just consists of submitting a few forms to the DOJ. And it's private parties that bear the cost of Section 2 litigation, while it's the DOJ that bears the cost of preclearance under Section 5. So what do these differences mean empirically? It's hard to say, since we've never had a regime in the South with Section 2, but not Section 5. But we can still make a few educated guesses. So first, a study by Alan Katz at the University of Michigan found that Section 2 suits in covered areas succeeded about 40% of the time over the last 25 years. So this suggests that plaintiffs will often lose when they use Section 2 to challenge policies that formerly would have been blocked by Section 5. Often, the difference in the burden of proof will be dispositive. Second, litigators at the DOJ have estimated that preliminary injunctions are granted very, very rarely in Section 2 cases. Only about 5% of the time, maybe even less often than that. So this means that policies that formerly would have been blocked from the get-go by Section 5, now almost always will go into effect for at least a little while, even if they're eventually struck down in a Section 2 suit. And third, Section 2 cases that go to trial and then appeal cost in the vicinity of half a million dollars, while Section 5 preclearance submissions only cost about $5,000. Section 2 cases are also some of the most difficult on the entire federal court docket. One study ranked them sixth out of 63 categories in terms of complexity. So private parties would need a lot more money and a lot more manpower 
to challenge under Section 2 all of the policies that formerly would have been blocked by Section 5. And one rough estimate is that uh, private parties would need about triple their current resources in order to challenge all of the formerly blocked policies. So until now, in talking about the procedural differences between Section 2 and Section 5, I've implicitly been controlling for their differences in substance. So I've been assuming, in other words, that the substantive standard for liability is the same under both provisions. But the substantive standard is not actually the same. And so next I'll talk about how the standard diverges in two key areas, uh, vote denial and vote dilution. So by vote denial, first, I mean franchise restrictions that make it more difficult for people to vote. These kinds of restrictions have surged in popularity in, re in recent years. And they include things like photo ID requirements for voting and proof of citizenship requirements for registering to vote, limits on voter registration drives, uh, and cutbacks to early voting. So interestingly, so the Supreme Court has never decided a vote denial case under the Voting Rights Act. So we have to look to lower court decisions to figure out the standard of liability. And under Section 2, there's a consensus in the lower courts that a mere statistical disparity between minorities and whites is not enough to establish liability. But courts disagree as to what else needs to be shown. Some courts want proof of proximate causation, so proof that a franchise restriction directly causes the disparity between minorities and whites. Other courts want at one evidence that a restriction interacts with social and historical patterns of discrimination to adversely affect minority members. And still other courts want plaintiffs to satisfy the so-called Senate factors, which are a list of criteria that a really important Senate report mentioned back in 1982. Under Section 5, on the other hand, there is consensus among the lower courts that a disparate impact on minorities is enough for preclearance to be denied. Uh, there was a trio of cases right before Shelby County, all of which agreed that Section 5 is violated if a policy disproportionately burdens minority voters. Though these cases also held that the burden has to be material. So a disproportionate but trivial burden isn't enough. Um, so because states only recently started enacting franchise requirements in large numbers, there isn't a huge amount of evidence as to whether the difference in the substantive standard matters. But the limited data we do have suggests that the difference does have some real consequences. Uh, for example, no plaintiff yet has succeeded in a Section 2 suit challenging a photo ID law. In the last few years, plaintiffs lost high-profile Section 2 photo ID cases in both Arizona and Georgia. But three photo ID laws have been blocked, at least temporarily, under Section 5. Um, these were in Louisiana in the 1990s and in South Carolina and Texas just last year. Similarly, when Florida sharply reduced its period for early voting a couple years back, a court upheld this cutback with respect to the state as a whole under Section 2, but a different court blocked the cutback with respect to the five Florida counties that used to be covered by Section 5. And purges of voter rolls have never been challenged successfully under Section 2, but have been denied preclearance eight times under Section 5. Um, that being said, there have been a decent number of successes in Section 2 vote denial cases involving issues like poll worker misconduct, 
ballot invalidation and obsolete voting machines. And some of the Section 2 defeats that I mentioned seem to have been because of bad lawyering, not the inherent limitations of the law. So for example, the plaintiffs in the photo ID cases never presented any evidence that minorities were less likely to possess valid IDs than white voters. So I think one shouldn't be too discouraged by the poor record to date of Section 2. Uh, it easily could improve in the future with some savvier uh, lawyering. Um, still, it does seem likely that franchise restrictions are easier to block under Section 5 than under Section 2. And this means, in turn, that jurisdictions that used to be covered by Section 5 now will have an easier time adopting franchise restrictions if they want to adopt them. So the question is, will they want to adopt them? And the answer is pretty clearly yes, I think, when Republicans are in charge of state governments. So the conventional wisdom, which is backed up by empirical data, is that franchise restrictions tend to disproportionately hurt Democrats because it's poorer and less educated voters who lean Democratic who tend to be less likely to be able to comply with those restrictions. So the political incentives for Republicans now pretty unambiguously point toward the enactment of additional franchise restrictions. And in fact, that's exactly what we've seen in the few months since Shelby County was decided. So Alabama, Mississippi, and Texas have all passed or implemented photo ID laws. Florida has launched an effort to purge non-citizens from its voter rolls. And North Carolina passed an omnibus franchise restriction uh, bill that includes a photo ID requirement, a cutback to early voting, and an end to same-day voter registration. Um, as for Democrats, they're not currently in power in any southern state. Uh, but if they were, they'd have no real reason to enact franchise restrictions. They'd be shooting themselves in the foot if they did so, since it's their own supporters who are more likely to be affected by the restrictions. OK, so the other area to which the Voting Rights Act applies is vote dilution. And even though vote denial has been getting all of the headlines recently, it's actually vote dilution that accounts for the vast majority of activity under both Section 2 and Section 5 historically. So vote dilution refers to measures that don't actually deny anyone the right to vote, but that weaken a group's electoral strength by tinkering with how votes are aggregated. Redistricting is the classic example, although the term also covers things like a jurisdiction's choice of what electoral system to use. So unlike with vote denial, here we have a whole bunch of on-point Supreme Court decisions. And their most notable theme has been to restrict the scope of Section 2. So to make it apply to fewer and fewer kinds of districts. So now we have several distinct reasons why a district might formerly have been protected under Section 5, but now might not give rise to a Section 2 claim if it's dismantled. First, the court held in the 1990s that Section 2 never requires districts that are shaped really strangely. So if minority members are distributed in such a way that only a bizarre-looking minority district can be designed to enclose them, then there can't be liability under Section 2. Under Section 5, on the other hand, district shape is totally irrelevant. So as long as minorities have the ability to elect their preferred candidate, a district is protected no matter what it looks like. Uh, second, the court held in the 2006 case of Lulac v. Perry that Section 2 never requires districts 
that combine really dissimilar minority communities. Uh, for example, urban and rural minority groups. If that's the only kind of minority district that you can draw in a given area, then again, there can't be liability under the provision. But under Section 5, the makeup of a district's minority population, again, is totally irrelevant. So as long as the population is able to elect its preferred candidate, the district is protected. And third, the court held in the 2009 case of Bartlett v. Strickland that Section 2 cannot ever require the creation of districts in which minority voters make up less than 50% of the total district population. So it can't ever require the creation of something other than a majority minority district. But under Section 5, districts with minority populations below 50% are still protected if those populations are able to elect their preferred candidate with reliable crossover support from white voters. So there are three reasons why districts that formerly were protected by Section 2 now might not be protected, sorry, that before protected by Section 5, now might not be protected by Section 2. And I wanted to find out how many current districts in the South fall into each of these three categories. So my first step was to figure out how many current districts used to be protected by Section 5. And I identified 404 of these districts in the nine southern states that used to be covered by Section 5. These districts either have minority populations above 50% or they have minority populations above 40% and a minority representative. Next, I calculated two kinds of compactness scores for these districts. These scores indicate, number one, how dispersed districts' territories are, and number two, how irregular the boundaries of the districts are. And 22 of the 404 districts had sufficiently poor dispersion or irregular, irregularity scores that they're probably uncovered by Section 2 because of their weird shapes. And you can see on the slide what some of the very worst looking districts uh, look like. Um, let me also take this chance to apologize for the lack of diagrams so far in this presentation. So of the 22 potentially uncovered districts, most of them are in state houses. And North Carolina is the uh, single worst offender with uh, six of the districts on the list. So all of these districts now probably can be eliminated without giving rise to a successful Section 2 claim. Um, second, I used census data at the block group level to figure out how heterogeneous districts' minority populations are. Very heterogeneous minority populations are likely to merge dissimilar minority communities, and that's not allowed according to the court. So the redder that a block group is colored on the slide, the higher the socioeconomic status is of its minority population, and vice versa. Um, and a whopping 146 of the 404 districts that I mentioned have minority populations that are more heterogeneous than the district in LULAC did that the court rejected for this very reason. So all of these districts now probably can be dismantled without violating Section 2. And if all of them were to be dismantled, then minority representation in the South would plummet. Um, most of the vulnerable districts are, again, in state houses. Georgia and Texas have the largest numbers of these districts. And Arizona, which is the only state in my study that uses an independent commission to draw districts, has the fewest of these districts. Um, then third, I counted the number of districts in which minorities are able to elect their preferred candidate, but do not make up a majority of the district population. 
there are 17 of these districts, uh, none in Congress, six in state senates, and 11 in state houses. And Arizona has by far the most of these districts, most likely because it's the only state in my study in which Republicans weren't the ones doing the line drawing in 2010. So when Republicans have to draw minority districts, they have a political incentive to make districts minority populations as large as possible. Uh, that way they inefficiently pack Democratic voters and they can more easily enact a pro-Republican gerrymander. But in Arizona, the commission wasn't trying to enact a pro-Republican gerrymander. So it had no reason to push districts, minority populations as high as possible. Uh, and the chart shows you what the Republican line drawers did in the other eight states in my, in my study. So there's a small peak around 60% minority population, which is an area where districts tend to vote Democratic by overwhelming margins. And then there's a much bigger peak around 20% minority population where Republicans tend to win safely, but not too safely. And there are almost no districts in the middle, in the 30% to 50% range, which is the best range for Democrats. So this is pretty close to the optimal distribution if you're trying to maximize the number of Republican seats while still drawing enough minority districts to comply with Section 5. So there are lots of districts that used to be protected by Section 5, but that now can be eliminated without violating Section 2. So will these districts be eliminated? Well, both parties actually have some incentives to preserve these districts when they're in control of redistricting. So Republicans, for example, as you just saw in the histogram, do really well under the status quo. They already benefit by packing minority voters into these very heavily minority districts. And as for Democrats, minority groups are a very important part of the Democratic coalition. And these groups really value districts in which they're able to elect their preferred candidates. They really don't want to sacrifice these districts so the Democrats can do better as a party. Still, I think it's pretty clear that the optimal strategy for both parties is to dismantle at least some of the newly unprotected districts. Republicans first often could win even more seats if there were fewer minority-controlled districts. And that's why you see Republicans in Texas, whose original district plans were blocked by Section 5, now pushing to return to those original plans instead of accepting the plans that a court came up with. And as for Democrats, they've now learned, I think, that it's better for them as a party to draw districts that are just over 50% Democratic instead of just over 50% minority. And I think that if Democrats actually win back control of any southern state before the next line drawing cycle, you'll see a lot more of those kinds of districts. Um, okay, so the key point of everything I've said until now is that there is, in fact, a substantial gap between Section 2 and Section 5. So Shelby County is going to have a substantial negative impact on minority representation in the South. So what should be done about this situation? One option is just to do nothing. So if one doesn't think that a decline in minority representation is an especially severe problem, then one wouldn't really support any responses to Shelby County. On the other hand, if Congress or the court think that this decline is a problem, there are a number of steps they could take to shrink the Section 2, Section 5 gap. Uh, one, Congress could take the court's advice and draft, quote, another formula based on current conditions. And pretty much any metric Congress might use would result in most of the formerly covered areas once again being covered. So the Deep South has the highest volume and the highest success rate 
of Section 2 litigation. It has the highest levels of racial polarization in voting in the country. And it also has the highest levels of racially discriminatory attitudes uh, in the nation. Second, Congress could amend Section 3 of the Voting Rights Act. This is the so-called bail-in provision. Right now, Section 3 only allows courts to impose preclearance on a jurisdiction if they find that the jurisdiction has committed a constitutional violation. So Congress could change the Section 3 standard to allow preclearance to be imposed even if a jurisdiction has just violated Section 2 and not the Constitution itself. And third, Congress could eliminate much of the Section 2, Section 5 gap by making Section 2 suits easier to win. So on the procedural side, Congress could increase the availability of preliminary injunctions, or it could shift the burden of proof from the plaintiff to the jurisdiction. With respect to vote denial, Congress could make disparate impact alone the substantive standard for liability. And with respect to vote dilution, Congress could say that Section 2 is violated even if a district is strangely shaped and even if a district has a minority population that is quite heterogeneous or below 50% in size. And finally, at least on the substantive side, the court could also make these changes itself. Almost all of the substantive limitations on Section 2 are a product of restrictive court decisions. They're not the result of the actual text of the law. So if it wanted to, the same court that narrowed Section 2 in the past could broaden Section 2 in the future. Uh, although I'm not really holding my breath that that will happen. Uh, and I'll leave it at that, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. And I can also cold call, if you would prefer that. <laughs> yep. So you're talking about how like, one of the possible responses is to re-draft the formula. Um, and you're saying how you would come up with the same district. I just don't understand how those who voted to eliminate Section 5 could say it was outdated if, if no matter how we rework it, we're going to come up with the same district. Yeah, so the court majority's objection was largely formalistic, right? So they they looked at the actual wording of the formula, which referenced election results in 1968 and 1972. And the court's only key objection was that you need to have an updated coverage formula. The court wasn't objecting to which jurisdictions were covered by the formula. Uh, the court didn't make any statements whatsoever about whether the geographic scope of coverage was right or not. The court just said, if you want to cover places today and make them comply with this unusual preclearance requirement, you need to do so based on current data. So I think the court's decision leaves open uh, a renewed formula that covers almost the exact same places, but just uses you know, 2013 data, not 1968 data, to, to do so. Yep. So this objection is that uh, what's really motivating a lot of these laws right now is not racial animus, it's just partisanship. Uh, and so if that's the real problem, why are we dealing with a civil rights statute in the model of the 1960s? That doesn't really seem to fit the problems of, uh, of 2013. Uh, you know, if, if, if that's our judgment, that racial cleavages in voting and elections are uh, no longer sufficiently important to us as a society, then I think that would counsel 
in favor of not renewing the Voting Rights Act, not trying to come up with some race-oriented way to deal with any of these problems. Uh, I think a lot of folks would say that race and partisanship are still interwoven in all sorts of subtle and complicated ways. We've made a lot of progress since the 1960s, but we haven't eliminated the racial cleavage in our politics. For example, levels of racial polarization in voting, which are one good measure of how significant of a cleavage race is in our politics, those levels have been rising over the last decade, not falling. So I think any supporter of the VRA would agree that in a world that's, that has really moved beyond race, so in a world where race really isn't a salient axis in our politics, then we wouldn't need this sort of statute. But as long as we keep having massive levels of racial polarization, as long as we still see uh, a number of deliberate efforts to reduce minority strength, uh, as long as a lot of voters continue to hold racially discriminatory attitudes, the time might not have come yet to, to move beyond this statute into a different model. Yep. In the sake of this illuminating presentation, I guess the only uh, thing I would say is that the remedy sounds pretty fanciful. I mean, neither the House of Representatives that consists of these gerrymandered members nor the court has any incentive to change status quo that benefits them. And so it seems to me that we're stuck with this until 2020, if not beyond, because the same people will be redistricting them again in 2020. I mean, what are the real remedies? I mean, these are the academic remedies. Uh, so I, I'm also quite pessimistic that the current <laughs> House of Representatives is likely to amend Section 2 or Section 3 or Section 4 in, in any of the ways that I've listed. Uh, I'm not quite as pessimistic over the medium term as I am in the short term. So. Uh, Let's we'll start with the court. Uh, you know, there are four votes against Shelby County. There are four votes right now that dislike the entire body of voting rights law that exists under the VRA. So you know, we're one conservative justice's resignation away from a sea change that would really transform Section 2 law, Section 3, Section 4 law. All of that could be different in a, in a fairly short time span if one vote switches on the court. Uh, then at the congressional level, um, quite interestingly, Republican Congresses in the past have reauthorized and strengthened the Voting Rights Act. So Section 2 in its current form, with real teeth, uh, wasn't passed like this until 1982. And that was with a Republican Senate and a Republican President signing into law the most aggressive ever expansions of Section 2 scope. Uh, Section 5, in its uh, form right before it was struck down by the court in Shelby County, was reauthorized by an entirely Republican Congress in 2006 and signed into law by a Republican president. And it wasn't just renewed. Again, Section 5 was strengthened. So you know, at least until the very recent past, people have tended to see voting rights as one of those issues that commands bipartisan support in Congress. Uh, and even today, there have been noises by Eric Cantor and uh, Jim Sensenbrenner, who's the Republican who led the reauthorization fight in 2006, uh, that they want Republicans in Congress to do something about Shelby County. So I'm still very pessimistic, given the overall gridlock and polarization in Congress. But there are a number of somewhat favorable historical precedents from the not that distant past. Uh, involving both parties. Yep. Can you give me the fact that a lot of these franchise restrictions have effects also on college students, elderly, and poor whites might have an effect on the possible responses to this court's decision, even though the VRA only covers people based on their race or color? Uh, yeah, so the fact that these restrictions uh, disproportionately burden uh, not just minorities, but also uh, poor people, elderly, et cetera, that opens up other causes of action to try to strike down the restrictions. So the Voting Rights Act is, uh, is one option, but you can also make uh, a constitutional challenge on the basis of uh, burdening the right to vote. Uh, that failed in Crawford in a facial challenge, but as applied challenges on behalf of groups that are especially burdened are still allowed. But I don't think the sensitivity extends 
to other states and to other uh, uh, differential policies. Well, see, usually courts are actually, legislatures are very open when it comes to redistricting that uh, our goal is to uh, maximize the electoral position of the majority party, uh, full stop. Um, that's because uh, at the moment there's no justiciable standard for uh, striking down political gerrymanders. So because there's no potential that a gerrymander will be struck down on that basis, uh, legislatures have nothing to fear about being totally open uh, about their partisan objectives. Uh, that's true with respect to redistricting because there the courts have concluded that a partisan motivation is okay. It's not true with respect to other electoral policies. So partisan advantage is not considered a permissible rationale for a photo ID law or for uh, requiring voters to prove citizenship before they can register to vote. So in those contexts, states never uh, claim that partisanship is their motive. They always claim that it's stopping fraud or improving the efficiency of their electoral system. Uh, and you know, I, I have no idea how, how sincere or not sincere those, those claims are. Uh, it is notable that essentially not a single Democrat-run state has enacted any of these franchise restrictions, uh, while almost every Republican-run state has at least made noises about doing so, and dozens of them have actually enacted these restrictions. Uh, so can you prove partisan intent from that? Uh, probably not, but, but the data is certainly suggestive of at least some uh, partisan advantage. Mm -hmm. Uh, is, is, is fraud uh, a rampant uh, uh, reality in these states? Uh, the answer is, as far as anyone can tell, uh, absolutely not. So people have tried pretty hard to document actual cases of uh, impersonation voter fraud, and they've come up with tiny, tiny numbers of cases, you know, literally a, a number of cases that you can count on, uh, on one or two hands. Uh, other kinds of fraud might be taking place. You know, there are still allegations of uh, absentee voter fraud, registration fraud, uh, even vote buying in some places, uh, corrupt polling place officials. So other kinds of fraud happen, not in huge levels, but they still happen. But there is essentially no evidence that uh, impersonation-style voter fraud is happening anywhere in the country. Uh, and that's because it's a really dumb kind of fraud to, to commit. You know, if you want to rig an election, use it by impersonating other voters. You have to convince a lot of people to take part in your conspiracy. The odds of getting caught are really high. You know, if I go to the polling place and I claim to be John Smith, and John Smith has already voted, you know, I'm caught and I've committed a felony that in every state exposes me to substantial imprisonment. Uh, and you know, if you want to swing a, a substantial number of votes, you need so many voters to participate in this. So I think that's why people that want to rig elections have better ways of doing so than, uh, than impersonation <laughs> voter fraud. I mean, one, one can dream of, uh, of, of successful future policies. Lots of other Western democracies have one single centralized election commission that's responsible for 
redistricting and campaign finance and election administration. And that seems to work really well. Like in Canada, they have Elections Canada, and it's one single federal body that just runs all elections throughout the country. Uh, here, Congress likely doesn't have the power to set up a federal system for state-level elections. Uh, Congress only has the power to regulate federal elections under the Elections Clause. Uh, Congress certainly could use that power to come up with an overarching comprehensive code for all federal elections. Uh, and a number of folks have argued that that's exactly what Congress should do. Uh, and there's some desire to do that. Uh, the problem is you, know, you also have 50 states that are used to running their elections. And you have 50 secretaries of state in the different states who are often pretty significant state-level politicians who want to keep their power over their state's electoral systems. Uh, so at least so far, most of the efforts to federalize anything have kind of failed. Um, so about a decade ago, Congress set up the, the EAC, like the Election uh, Administration Commission or Council, which essentially does nothing. But, but even though it's essentially a powerless organization, it's still perceived as a massive threat by all the states. And they've been lobbying for a decade to defund it and to cripple it. Uh, so if the EAC gets us nowhere, and if that meets this kind of resistance, uh, it's really hard to, to contemplate how uh, a serious federalized body could ever be plausible in the, you know, in the near term. Um, I still agree it would be a much better solution than having you know, 50 disorganized and often incompetent states administering the elections. And note, the, the incredible decentralization isn't just at the state level. The states often outsource a lot of uh, election administration responsibilities to counties and to, to towns and cities. So we, we don't even have 50 systems in America. We actually have thousands of systems. And even within the same state, you might get huge variation from one county to another. Probably time for one more question, if there are any. All right, if not, uh, thank you very much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.